Only a month ago, you had an unprecedented number of countries come together to cut production or do other things to try to stabilize oil markets, which were really in free fall. Welcome to another episode of the Post-Pandemic Order podcast with the German Marshall Fund. I'm Julie Smith, one of the hosts of the podcast, and today we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and disruptions in the energy market. They blur together, lots to talk about in terms of big geostrategic trends. We have the perfect guest today to talk about this subject. I'm pleased to welcome Megan O'Sullivan, who is a professor of international affairs at the Kennedy School at Harvard, where she also directs the Geopolitics of Energy Project. Megan served in the Bush administration from 2004 to 2007 as the Deputy National Security Advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan and held other positions in the U.S. government as well. And she's written a number of books. Her last book, actually, that came out in 2017 is called Windfall, How the New Energy Abundance Upends Global Politics and Strengthens America's Power. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Thanks, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here. And I rarely, if ever, add to an introduction, um, especially since you gave me such a nice one. But I also just want to say what an honor it is to be a trustee of the German Marshall Fund and that I'm very happy to be with you to talk about this fascinating topic today. Absolutely. Should have mentioned that. So glad that you're with us on our board and it's a treat for us to have you on the podcast today. So let's just jump right in here. We've had a number of episodes where we've talked to other guests about this kind of question that many of us are debating, and that is, is the global pandemic accelerating or exacerbating current trends or is it creating new ones? And from where you sit, and where your expertise resides in the field of energy, energy politics, the geopolitics of energy. How do you look at that question? Um, Would you land on one side or the other? Is the answer a little bit of both? It's a great question. There's so many points to make. Let me just make two about energy in particular. I think one of the places where... um, trends in the energy markets just over the last couple of months have really had a striking departure to trends elsewhere is it has been a place where there has been unprecedented international cooperation. And again, this is in a landscape where many of us are lamenting that we're not seeing more international cooperation. But literally, um, it seems like a lifetime ago, but only a month ago, you had um, an unprecedented number of countries come together and make commitments to cut production or do other things to to try to stabilize um, oil markets, which were really in free fall. And what you ended up with was an agreement that was not just OPEC, it was not just OPEC plus, which was OPEC plus Russia, which um, and a number of other countries that had been cooperating for the last few years. But it also involved, um, really surprisingly, President Trump. President Trump was actually, people were calling him OPEC's chief negotiator in the sense that he was the person who really people give credit to for getting Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and Vladimir Putin back to the negotiating table and underscoring the importance of of making these commitments. So um, it really was was a moment, I think, where a lot of us who were looking for how this 
crisis in the world could catalyze new forms of cooperation actually gained a little bit of hope. Now there's some um, some questions about, you know, is this a one-off or can there be a new kind of international infrastructure around this that can sort of institutionalize some new energy governance cooperation? I think that remains to be seen, but there's an opportunity. The last thing I'll mention um, briefly in terms of trends has to do with the energy transition. And of course, this is a huge subject, but um, I think there's uh, a real and again, no one knows the answer to this question, but a real possibility that this COVID-19 crisis changes the trajectory of the energy transition. And um, if you're an optimist, you think it speeds it up. If you're a pessimist, you think it slows it down. The argument for speeding it up is that we have many countries around the world which are going to be enacting big stimulus bills. And there'll be a lot of infrastructure spend likely in these stimulus bills and infrastructure you know, always been a, a, a hurdle for uh, renewable and alternative energies to get over. So we could see these these stimulus bills really advancing the energy transition, uh, accelerating it, making um, that transition easier. On the flip side, you know, there are a number of trends that COVID-19, um, you know, is, is catalyzing, sort of protectionism, deterioration, the U.S.-China relationship. And these things, I think, make it harder to imagine how the world is going to meet its climate goals. So I think there's an argument to be made either way, but I'd be very surprised if the energy transition just kind of continues along uh, the way it was before this crisis. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I like that you've laid out some kind of silver linings and some things to watch out for. And in a minute, I want to get into some of the risks um, that we should be thinking about with some of these changes. But let's just jump for a minute to the question of demand. Demand is obviously something that uh, many countries around the world have been watching very closely in recent years, well before the pandemic hit. Obviously, we've watched a radical shift unfold vis-a-vis demand in the last couple of weeks. But looking at how demand was shaping up um, over the last years because of new technology, what the U.S. was able to do with fracking and accessing new forms of, of energy, I mean, could you ever have imagined us getting to the place where we are today in your wildest dreams? I mean, all of us in the national security field like to participate in these tabletop exercises and various war games, as we call them, um, to think about future scenarios. I have to say this one was probably not on my list. Maybe it was on yours. <laughs> no, I don't know anyone who claims that they saw this scenario. I mean, just as your comment suggests, Julie, just putting this into context, this is absolutely unprecedented. This is the biggest crisis. Now, energy and oil are not synonymous, but you know, this has been primarily but not exclusively a crisis in oil markets, which then affects gas markets and other markets. But I mean, we're, people still don't know the exact numbers, but it looks like a drop in demand of between 25 and 30 percent over uh, the second quarter. So, I mean, that is massive in, wow. in a context where, you know, the world has gotten used to global oil demand rising by a million or a million plus barrels of oil a day every year. So, you know, we had been in a situation where um, demand for fossil fuels as a whole, natural gas, coal, oil, had been continuing to rise. We we see renewables actually, you know, making their own inroads. But um, 
Actually, if you look at the statistics, renewable energy had been rising enough to meet the increase in global energy demand, but not enough to really displace fossil fuels. So, you know, it was a it was a very complicated situation to begin with. But now we're in this um, situation where the biggest debate I think right now among people who follow oil markets is how quickly will demand come back for oil, and um, will it will it ever reach? the the numbers of uh, December 2019. I think most people I talk to in the industry are pretty optimistic. They think the economy is going to come back on strong and people are going to start to travel and drive. And, you know, maybe people are even going to be driving more because they're going to be more worried about commuting and all of these different things. However, um, you know, I think there's a lot, and I put myself in this basket, a lot of people who are skeptical think that demand is going to be very slow. You know, a lot of people are not going to get on airplanes and people's behaviors are going to change. So there is a substantial debate about how quickly demand will come back. And this will affect the the topic I mentioned just a minute or two ago about the energy transition. So it will really impact um, the ability for the energy transition to kind of pick up steam if demand for oil is growing quite slowly. I mean, other fossil fuels, coal, interestingly, I think coal is going to have maybe its worst year because, you know, it, it was already kind of the fossil fuel most derided and demand for coal has gone down a lot. And natural gas, which is a great substitute for coal, has become a lot cheaper. So that's good you know, for natural gas. It's good for the environment and other things. So the demand question is very complicated. But as you point out, in an unprecedented situation, and, um, and I think a lot of questions about you know, how quickly things will return to normal, if ever. So you and I have worked in the field of national security in government, and I must admit that in the many, many meetings um, that I attended in government, I, I always felt like energy didn't really get the attention that it deserved in terms of appreciating how changes in the energy markets can have radical national security implications. And so I wanted to ask you, looking at where we are today and looking out at the world, there's a lot to talk about. You could pick, you know, one or two examples that you want to dig into. But if you were in a position to advise those that are sitting in the situation room right now, looking at the national security and U.S. foreign policy broadly, what would you want them to be thinking about in terms of the risk associated with what's happening in the energy markets and how that plays out in the national security field? Sure. I mean, I think it is a place where there are immediate risks and then there are longer term risks. And the immediate risks are already upon us. Um, They're not that surprising, I don't think, because we've seen such a massive plummeting of oil demand, a little bit of a supply shock between Russia and Saudi Arabia, which we could talk about. But, you know, all this translates into this massive decline in the price of oil. This has hit so many countries around the world really hard. And so I think we have immediate immediate risks of failed states. And and some of these risks are in countries that are very critical to U.S. interests. They're not just Middle Eastern countries, um, but really you can look around the world and see how many countries, um, you know, might have weak institutions and are heavily reliant on oil revenues for meeting their fiscal needs. So, I mean, in many cases, you have countries that over 90% of their budgets are funded by oil revenues. And when you have the price 
drop as it did. And the price actually went negative in the United States and went from the 70s a few months ago down to the 20s. Uh, this has meant that you've had a lot of countries, um, take for instance Iraq, where its budget, you know, the, now its oil revenues don't even allow it. They're not sufficient to allow it even to pay the salaries of its civil servants. Forget about healthcare, education, security, all of these things. So I think you can see how very quickly a massive economic crisis in a weak state could translate into political problems and security problems. And you know, three countries that I'm watching for very different reasons and have very different implications and different vulnerabilities are Iraq, as I just mentioned, Nigeria, you know, this huge country, huge economy in Africa that was suffering economically even before this crisis. And you know, just the possibility that it could exacerbate the security crisis that the Nigerians have been fighting with their, their own Boko Haram. And Mexico, you know, Mexico is in a much better position than Iraq or Nigeria, for sure. But it's also on the U.S. border, and it's going to be making tough choices about its budget. And one of those places to cut could be security, which would have implications for our border, which had implications for um, cartel activity, all types of things. So, I mean, those are just three countries you could mention, but there's so many that are having these crises. And that's the short term. Just a word about the medium and long term, as you said, if I was thinking thinking about this from the U.S. government perspective, I would really be thinking hard about what this means for countries that are important partners for us that really needed this time and space to diversify their economies away from oil. And the one that jumps out the most is obviously Saudi Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabia had has an aggressive plan to diversify its economy. It had been struggling with it. It's quite a difficult plan to execute, but it really was dependent on this notion that there was at least a decade, maybe more, of reasonably high oil prices that could be invested in order to diversify its economy. You know, in this situation, it is going to be very, very hard to execute on that. And then it, you know, it opens a question in the medium term, what is the future of Saudi Arabia? How is it going to be sustained? Is it a viable econ economic model? So I think, you know, Saudi Arabia, the implications for the U.S. are obvious, but it goes for other countries as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a long list of countries I wish we could, you know, we had all day. But I, I would like to ask you about two more. Let's start with Russia in the remaining minutes that we have. I mean, here's a country where we've seen when Putin is backed into a corner and is feeling pressure at home, he often will kind of go out into the field of foreign policy, either to create crises or stir the pot, portray the country as a bit of a victim, try to stir kind of some nationalist sentiment. I mean, Russia is also interesting because of the toolkit it has with energy coercion. I, thinking through kind of the medium and long term, I mean, do you land in a place where you think a weakened Putin is presents opportunities for the United States, or should we be on our guard watching out for adventurism and all sorts of efforts to kind of create crises abroad? Yeah. And this, of course, Julie, is a space you know really well, so I'd love your views on this as well. You know, my bottom line is I think it definitely exacerbates weaknesses in Russia. I'll say a few more sentences about that. And that at least past history, and I would say recent history, has indicated, as you suggest, that 
that doesn't necessarily mean you can kind of count Russia out for being a withdrawn global actor. That certainly Vladimir Putin has, in recent years, used economic weakness as kind of an impetus to exert himself globally in order to basically provide Russians with a sense of satisfaction, even when he hasn't been able to deliver economic well-being, which has more or less been the case, I would say, you know, beginning around the time um, that he annexed Crimea. That's when the economy, you know, it's, it's fascinating if you map out Putin's popularity alongside oil prices, you can see that they, they kind of have moved in tandem over the years. And when those things started to decouple, what's around 2014. In any case, this crisis today, I think the Russians, you know, there was something which has now become a footnote in history, but for a few weeks, it was a major big deal, um, was this crisis between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And the Russians basically saying, we don't need to cut production. We can just you know, produce as much as we want and everybody else should, and let's we'll just see where the market comes out. You know, they had no idea, nor did anyone else, that there's going to be this precipitous drop in demand and that the price would go down so much. So the Russians thought they could weather this economic crisis, but it's going to be much tougher for them than they expected. And as I said, it could also hasten the energy transition, which isn't going to be good news for Russia because Russia has really not made a lot of preparations for that. I think it also geopolitically has has weakened Russia's status in the Middle East, something that Putin actually could make great claims about what he's achieved in a relatively short period of time. But, you know, this this spat actually, I think, made a lot of countries in the Middle East re-look at their relationship with Russia and say, well, it's transactional, it's not strategic, and we have to be cautious about how much we rely on Russia to help look out for our own interests. And then economically, as I said, not just in terms of a budget, but a lot of Russia's energy prowess, I think, or at least some of it could be called into question. Certainly, Russia has committed to making huge cuts in its production. It actually has. But a lot of the economic viability of some of its new energy projects, I think, are called into question in this environment. Uh, Russia was positioning itself to be a major player in the liquefied natural gas space. And this, I think, is going to be harder to do in this price environment. So I think, again, as, as we said, um, it's going to be a little bit of a continuation or even an intensification of the storyline that we've seen before. You know, economic duress caused by energy market changes, which, again, there was a, a previous chapter of this. And, you know, what it means for Vladimir Putin, I think we don't know exactly. His domestic position is different than it was in 2014. But as, you know, as we're speaking as former policymakers, I certainly would not count Russia out. I would not say they're going to be an acquiescent global player. But if anything, that there could be more you know, more impetus to stir the pot just to kind of exert Russia's geopolitical status at a time when it's going to be economically pretty weak. I have to ask you about China. It's not a country that is first on the list. When you're thinking energy, it usually takes you into the Middle East immediately and then goes to other regions from there. In an environment where we're not seeing, at least right now, the U.S. and China coming together to cope with the pandemic in any way, shape or form, um, is there a way for China and the United States um, to come together with other nations to tackle what's happening in the energy markets right now? What kind of role is there for China in this aspect of the crisis? Sure. I, it's a great question. And you'd be surprised about how many energy conversations I'm having do involve China. Um, China, as it, it's, you know, it's such a large consumer of energy and oil that we don't 
often remember it is one of the world's largest oil producers itself. So China has a lot of interest in the relative stability of um, energy markets and oil markets, in part because it imports a disproportionate amount of its oil consumption from the Middle East. So, you know, this geopolitical instability we were just talking about makes China very nervous as well. So China um, wasn't a critical actor in this April 12th agreement that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. But certainly, you know, China has been in consultations with the big producers trying to you know, establish its interest in an energy market that is not wildly volatile, which is difficult really for any economy, whether you're a producer or a consumer. But going to the, the point that I think you were starting to make, I mean, I have always seen energy and climate as areas where the U.S. and China have a lot in common. And, you know, I don't think I'm being naive about the state of the relationship. I, I appreciate it is a very difficult relationship. It's getting worse rapidly. And I see the, the future is one of a confrontational, a relationship that's largely confrontational. But I don't think it means it's not, there's not opportunities for cooperation somewhere in that landscape. And I would say those who are looking for them should be looking in this energy and climate area. And of course, this was true in previous administrations. But but it's still true now. And given this current crisis in energy markets, I think there is a place where China has a, a role to play, just as one of the world's largest energy consumers, one of the world's largest economies, one of its largest producers. So bringing it into these conversations, I think, are very important. But just let me end by saying that I think there's also the flip side, that the U.S.-China relationship is having a big impact, or, or I think it's looming, the deterioration in that bilateral relationship, I think, is likely to have a big impact on how quickly energy markets recover and what they look like afterwards. And that's because, you know, the rising nationalism we see, the likely rise in protectionism, the impetus to reshore investments, the decoupling, all of these things that look like they could be leading to kind of a deglobalization trend um, are ones that are going to be really, really hard on economic growth. And that means really hard on global energy demand because these two things are very, very critically linked. And that is going to complicate all kinds of things. It's going to complicate efforts to kind of stabilize oil markets, but it's also going to complicate efforts, as I mentioned at the, the start, to, to deal with the climate challenge. So, you know, I would I would say this is definitely, you know, it's still one of the ripest areas for U.S.-China um, cooperation. We saw that just in the phase one trade deal that was signed right before this whole crisis unfolded. You know, where, where China and the U.S. actually, when they were talking about or where they agreed they would have some progress, energy was a big part, a big component of that phase one trade deal. So I think there really is the prospect, and, and I hope that our policymakers will seize upon it because there are common interests between the U.S. and China in this domain. And, you know, maybe this could be a little island of cooperation or at least, you know, communication and an otherwise really uh, confrontational relationship going forward. 
Yeah, I hope you're right about that because right now it would be nice to identify some positive area, constructive area where we could be working together uh, with the Chinese. Things feel pretty dark uh, at the moment. Well, listen, I really appreciate, Megan, you taking the time today to join us for this. This is exactly why we started this podcast. We wanted to have these types of conversations about the post-pandemic world um, that we're all going to find ourselves in. Couldn't be more grateful for everything that you do for the German Marshall Fund, and we'll continue to read everything you're putting out. I know you're also a columnist with Bloomberg. Many of us are reading your pieces very closely. And so please keep up all the good work you're doing up there. Stay safe. And thanks again for joining us today. Well, thank you, Julie. And thank you for everything you're doing in writing and all the work you're doing for the German Marshall Fund. Um, And I'll look forward to staying in touch and continuing to work with the German Marshall Fund. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Chalet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.